0: Welcome to the Chicago Camps 2017 Prototypes Process and Play Design Leadership Conference Podcast sponsored by Balsamic. With Balsamic Mockups, anyone can design great interfaces. And in partnership with Simplecast, publish your podcast the easy way at simplecast.fm. This podcast features Dr. Steve Julius, former team psychologist for the Chicago Bulls and founder of the Human Resource Consulting Group, and his presentation, Getting a Seat at the Table and Keeping It, from August 11th, 2017. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Steve Julius.
1: Well, it's good to meet everybody. First of all... um, I could get up here and say ditto to everything Jay just shared, and I, I couldn't agree more with what she shared with you. Um, in fact, she hit on a number of just simple little pieces of advice that can make a world of difference in, in terms of your ability to have influence over time. I suppose now i got to start off by admitting to you I am a baby boomer. Okay, <laughs> I'm also a man, all right? And um, I was very lucky to grow up um, with a mom who, uh, you know, (laughs) snuck off and went to college and got caught by her parents and was told to get married. And she got married, and then she snuck off and went to college. And um, I've been married for almost 40 years to a person who's my business partner. And I've been witness, even during our internship and residency years, to the kind of harassment and abuse that she had to go through. And frankly, she could be up here talking to you based on on, on what was shared earlier this morning, because um, what she endured and refused to break over goes way beyond anything I've ever experienced. I was going to start off and tell you that because I'm a child psychologist and because you know, I have now moved into, you know, different arenas. For example, Russ talked about the Chicago Bulls. The owner of the Bulls used to say, you know, Steve, why don't you just stick to your shrinking? You know, just do your shrinking work. Don't tell us how to run the organization. But ultimately, um, you know, I became consigliere to that organization and others as well. So um, I'm also a living embodiment of somebody who had to change, you know, people's attitudes and their stereotypic expectations of who I was and what I brought to the table, in order to have greater influence. And I'm assuming that most, if not many, of you would like to uh, be, you know, considered more than just a designer, whatever that means or however that's interpreted. More than just a young kid who is wet behind the ears or or more than just a female and, you know whatever baggage that, that brings with it. And I was also going to tell you, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you that whatever, whatever um, your point of view is about this idea of a seat at the table, uh, I think that it's, it's critically important that in an organization it relies and benefits from the diversity that it brings to bear. Give you a simple case in point. I was brought into Northwestern University Medical Center about a decade, maybe 12 years ago, and um, there it was. A, I won't I won't reveal the differences, although I'll tell you. You know, if there, if there ever is a place that's hierarchical and and has stereotype, it's it's a hospital setting, and there's a legitimate reason for it up to a certain point, and. Um, there was a feud taking place between the physicians and the nurses about patient care and how to handle that. And I was asked to come in and to try to help resolve that and perhaps come up with an improved process. And to the credit of the, the chief of medicine there, you know, he was willing to allow me to bring in the single most important person on the team that uh, was missing. And literally, when he agreed to let me include this individual, we solved the problem in about an hour. And that was the head orderly, okay? A man, um, African American man, who was considered an orderly. And you know, when you think of an orderly, you know, they're just there to move people on transoms and things like that. And yet, because he touched so many aspects of what was the source of tension and conflict between the physicians and the nurses, he came up with his self. Well, guess what? He started to get invited after that to attend all of their staff meetings that were non-medical related. So, um, you know, the moral of that story and the message I wanted to share with you, that even though I'm an older guy, um, you know, getting up here to talk to you about how you can have a seat at the table, however that's defined, um, anybody in this room can do that. But it requires a change of attitude. And one of the points that Jay raised that I I think bears repeating over and over again, we assume that people have some kind of overt agenda working against us for whatever reason. But typically, it's more naivete, ignorance of the context that you're in. And by being present and refusing to not be present, by walking into the office where the president 's meeting with larry summers, and i can 't remember who the second gentleman was, and you know you know all of a sudden it just makes people aware by asking questions the right kinds of questions to become more of a self monitoring individual or organization, it just tends to elevate issues to the table, and automatically we 're developing a relationship and a perception of us that is different than what initially began. Make sense? Yep. So how's this? Better? All right. So does that mean I should start from the beginning? <laughs> well, I hope you heard some of what I was saying. Okay. I uh, apologize. I've got a soft voice, and it's getting softer as I get older. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm here just to share with you some basic... Ideas that I think anybody can use to put themselves in a position where they can have greater influence than their title or their status or their look, you know, brings to bear. But it requires persistence. It requires patience. And it also requires, um, you know, um, a realistic optimism. You have to really be resilient. You have to believe that things are temporary, not permanent. You have to believe that um, sometimes when you're knocking on a door and it doesn't open, that doesn't mean there aren't any other doors to go knock. You just have to find the right one. And, you know, sometimes you want to make a big difference and a big splash, but oftentimes the way you become a change agent, even if it's just an attitudinal change, is to think of yourself as a mosquito. You just want to infect the system. And slowly but surely, it, um, you work your way in, where you find those allies, where you find those mentors, where you have an opportunity to share a point of view that, up until now, nobody would have even given a second thought that you might have it. So <clears throat> I'm a guy who likes quotes. So I apologize up front. But this, to me, is a critical one. Does that make sense? If you're really going to be a business partner, a trusted advisor, you need to be able to not so much come up with solutions, but understand the problem first. That's critical. Okay, That demonstrates a sense of wisdom. Because whether you're the president of the United States or whether you're head of the IT department, you're you're fielding so many issues and so many themes and you're so stuck in the operational tactical mode that it's difficult to be able to take a step back and see the big picture. And frankly, if you or I or whoever's trying to make a decision or solve a problem doesn't understand the nub of the problem, you're going to miss the mark. And then if you fail... You know what it's like. It's a heck of a lot harder to overcome failure than it is success. So key number one, if you want to be at the table, you need to be able to be a good observer, a good listener. You need to understand more on that in just a minute. But it's also important to be able to make sure everybody agrees on what we're trying to solve before you jump in with a solution. Okay? Okay. Now, this is even fuzzier. I can tell the resolution is bad. I went to 169. I thought the resolution would be better, so I apologize. But there's a fellow by the name of David Meister who wrote a book that is considered by some a little old, it's about 15, 20 years old, David Meister, but it's called The Becoming the Trusted Advisor. It's a skinny little book. I think it's worth picking up. And, you know, it it it, it points out the different ways that you know, we can play an important role. And so often, people in design, people in clinical roles, um, you know, people in technology in general or in finance, you name it, they're viewed as suppliers, okay, vendors. Come to me and provide me with something, okay? And that is our role, first and foremost, to deliver the mail every day on time, rain or shine, okay? But if, if we aspire to be more, to be able to provide something that actually helps set the table, then we need to work to the point where we become um, someone that whoever that leader is looks at us to uh, help bounce an idea off of. Before they're ready to make a decision, if they have made a decision, they say, "I need you to deliver me this document or this piece of work." You're a supplier. If they say, "You know, I'm considering a new approach and I want to take um, our our business in a different direction," um, I'd like your input on it. Now you're a partner. All right. If the, the boss or the leader comes to you or, and says, "You know, it's not working the way we have this set up. I need to take it a different," way, uh, I'm lost, that's where you become the trusted advisor who in that previous quote can help identify or re- reframe the question. Okay? So I, I share this with you just to kind of orient us. Anybody sitting here, if they want to, can do this. Okay, We sit and watch politics on TV long enough, we all know the answers to the problems, but nobody seems to listen to us. You know, we feel more and more helpless, and and people aren't willing to listen to us. Well, if we can understand how we can infect that system, before you know it, you actually can begin to bend the curve and have influence in ways that you've never considered possible. Okay. But there are no shortcuts. It takes time. you got to persist. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you five basic principles Okay, and then I'm going to share with you what I consider a useful toolbox. I know I only have about a half hour to 40 minutes to talk with you, so I wanted to give you you know the headlines. I'm happy to hang around, and certainly at the Q&A, I'm happy to answer questions in more detail. But that that seemed like a reasonable path to take. Okay, so first thing is you need to know your stuff. So many people walk in to a room. Or walk into a relationship at work and they presume to know the business better than the people they're there to advise and I can't tell you how many times um, you know that, that individual is asked a question that they don't have the answer to so you know, and they get nonplussed. So let me just ask the group. You're coming in, you're supposedly the expert. Somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to, what do you do? Say you don't know. How many of you would have the guts to say, I don't know? Okay. So what's the second part of the answer? Critical. A trusted advisor, a person at the table doesn't always have to have the answers, but they need to be that proverbial one call away. That's the second piece. And so often we forget, and then we kick ourselves after we walk out of the room. So remember that. Know your stuff. If you don't know your stuff, then keep your mouth shut until you do. And sometimes it's a matter of doing your research. More on that in just a second. Understand your audience, understand the issues, so that you, if you need to do a little more prep before you walk into the room, before you debut as somebody who deserves to sit at the table, that's okay. But it never hurts to say, I don't know, but I know how to find out, or I know who can. And that, you don't lose your thunder, you actually gain value for all kinds of reasons. Uncover ways to add value. How many of you would say that if somebody asked your boss if, 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 if Mary or James were to leave, could we make it without them? And they, that boss would say, you know, I don't know what we would do without Mary or James if they left. Does anybody feel like they have that kind of status in their organization? No? Do you think anybody would say that about you? Yeah? Why would they say it? They don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, part of it is, the reason why I asked the question is, I would bet you that a good half of you have bosses or supervisors who would say, you know, uh, sure, we could probably replace this person, but it would take us months you know she or he understands our business they understand me they've got history institutional knowledge and you know what they get stuff done and they get it done on the right time so that's 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 principle number 2 of being considered invaluable now i actually have a young professional i was talking to just the other day and he believes he's ready for a director's title to go off from a manager's title, and he turned down two jobs because he thought they were too executional. He says, "I'm done with executional jobs." Now he's very smart, he's very strategic, but tell me what job doesn't have execution tied to it, right? Okay, so he he's forgetting first and foremost. In order to rise up the ladder, you need to become invaluable. You need to be seen as indispensable or irreplaceable. Not literally, but figuratively. Where, where your boss or the people who are the decision makers don't want to lose you. It's too much trouble than it's worth. Be credible. Now, that seems obvious, right? So first of all, what does credible mean? I, pardon me? I'm sorry? No, say it again. Believable. Believable. Integrity is important, and I'll touch on that in a minute. But first and foremost, I'd suggest you, you understand what accountability means, OK? I'm, I'm in no way a proponent of war. But um, in Shakespeare, in Henry V, the, the they talk about the band of brothers. You know, And they talk about it from a military perspective where people go off to battle and they love the people next to them as much as they love themselves because they know they depend on the person in front of them, to the side of them, and in back of them. Okay, And they also know that not only do I have a responsibility to perform my role, but if I don't perform my role, there's nobody to take the blame but me. If I drop my guard, then my colleagues, my comrades around me are affected. Okay. So the first thing, a true person who is viewed as a trusted member of a leadership team or a decision-making group is that they recognize that they have a role to do. And they also understand and can articulate very quickly how that role contributes to the accomplishing something bigger. Make sense? Now, being believable. Being believable comes from first being objective. You know, you don't always have the answer, or you sometimes have to provide the data behind it. You have to find a way to communicate that information that, you know, works for the end user. You have to talk about the benefits as opposed to the features, so to speak. Then comes integrity. Integrity means being able to you know acknowledge when you don't know and where you can go get it it also means the willingness to admit my mistake and I'm going to correct that mistake without excuses these are the critical things around credibility that will tend to win over your fans without this you get nowhere and I got to tell you, I have never seen, never seen anybody, whether it's myself, people that I've consulted to who have reached a certain point where they're part of the team where they haven't had a failure experience and recovered from it and demonstrated their value because they took ownership. That If you're going to stretch yourself, you're going to make mistakes. If you make mistakes, own it and learn from it, you're going to be respected. Okay. And then humility, okay? It means not calling attention to yourself, but calling attention to others. It means taking an idea that you have and building on somebody else's idea. Those are critical skills. And these are critical actions that we all have to take. And over time, by virtue of being there, you will begin to naturally elevate yourself. Now, what Jay was talking about, finding mentors, absolutely true, having people who are your allies. This is how you, this is how you build those relationships, where you demonstrate that if somebody's going to vouch for you, they have already seen you in action. They know that if they're vouching for you, you're going to take responsibility and accountability for living up to that endorsement. Here's an obvious one, right? Execute, okay? Execute means if you've got a task, get it done, okay? And get it done on time. But you know, I have been a CEO, okay? I ran a multi-hospital organization. I ran a four-county mental health organization, okay? And you know what I liked from the people who were executing for me? I liked that they would bring me good news fast, but bad news faster. Have you ever heard that saying? Okay. The worst thing in the world, and this ruins your credibility, is that if somebody is afraid to come and tell Steve Julius or anybody else, you know what, I thought I was going to hit that deadline, but I can't. And here are the reasons why. And in addition, here is how I'm going to solve it. Now, how many of you have been afraid to tell a superior that you weren't going to hit the deadline or the, the idea that you had for a beautiful design isn't going to quite play out the way you had hoped? Yeah. Not easy thing to do, right? So any of you um, remember the Challenger situation, the space shuttle Challenger do any of you remember what happened with the Challenger, other than it blew up? Do you know why it blew up? O-rings. The O-rings, and do you know the backstory to the O-rings? Backstory in, in at a high level, and it's too tragic an event to you know just pay a lip service. But for the sake of time, you should know that there were engineers who knew those O-rings were faulty. And that was after they had promised that they were going to deliver, you know, the engineering and you know and the product on time. And so a judgment was made by a superior to hold off and not tell anybody. And that became the 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 basic mantra. And ultimately it, it came back to bite us. It came back to kill several heroic individuals simply because somebody was afraid to go back and tell their superior that it wasn't working out. Now, I guarantee you those people would like to walk back that decision. And, and luckily, I don't believe anybody in this room, including myself, will be in that kind of a situation. But you can see how, when taken to its ultimate, how, how damaging that can be. And if you blow it, you don't execute, and you've got an excuse or you're constantly late, how much credibility are you gonna build? Okay, you know, and they don't you know it isn't gonna matter if your IQ is 180, it doesn't matter that what you produce is wonderful. If you want to have a seat at the table, you need to be accountable and you gotta execute, pure and simple. Okay. I just recently came into a situation where I was consulting with the marketing team for a very large company. And uh, they wanted to move from being a vendor a supplier, these were all PhD researchers in the marketing group, to having a seat at the table. And one of the first things I discovered was that we couldn't get anywhere until they understood that these are not theoretical games. They're, they're needing to produce information, and they need to produce it in a, in a particular fashion based on the needs of their customer and to do it on time And they weren't on time. Now take a step back for just a moment. Have I said anything yet that you don't already know? I haven't, have I? As my mother-in-law says, Steve, you get paid money for this? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And she's right in a way, okay? But my job is to bring the obvious to the forefront. No different... Perhaps not quite as profoundly important as what Jay was talking about earlier. Asking the right questions, bringing things up in people's busy lives in a way that gets them to take a step back and think, oftentimes is all that you need to do to bring it top of mind, so that you can decide how to how to pay attention to it. Okay. So can I continue with the obvious? Okay. So execute. If you don't execute, doesn't matter. I'll tell you one other thing, because I did... So Dwayne Wade, I'm not with the Bulls any longer, but I know this for a fact, and I remember this, other than a Michael Jordan, who carries a reputation with him. Um, but I'll show you the contrast in just a minute. So Dwayne Wade you know, arguably one of the top five or six shooting guards in the history of the NBA, at least the modern NBA. He comes to the Chicago Bulls, and they want him to be a leader and a mentor, all right? But he knows that he's done nothing for the Chicago Bulls, and Jimmy Butler is there. And he wisely said, well, I have to earn my credibility. This isn't the Miami Heat. This isn't the Marquette You know, team that I played for. This is the Chicago Bulls. They have a tradition, and they have uh, already a leader in Jimmy Butler. So he wisely took a a step back, and he earned it as much as he could on the court and in working with with Jimmy. Now you would think that you know that's not such a big deal, but in the world of big egos like professional sports, a lot of these guys decide to come in and um, believe that their, their reputation precedes them. Now, Michael Jordan, who is arguably one of the, I would say one of the top two best players of all time, my favorite is Bill Russell, he left the Chicago Bulls, and he went to play for the Washington Wizards, for those of you old enough or even care enough to remember. And Michael Jordan thought, you know, I'm Michael Jordan. Well... You know, one of the things I, I I found I had to teach the coaches of the Bulls was that when you're out of the league, because a lot of coaches are players, when you're out of the league more than four years, you're a generation. Because a, ge- a generation in the league is 4.3 years, we calculated. You're already dealing with a different group, all right? I remember Scott Skiles, I actually did a primer for him on just what the millennials are because he could not understand you know, how to, how to manage that that situation. Well, Michael Jordan came in, immediately walked on the court and tried to take over, and he got rejected by the other players. He was called an old man who was washed up, and he had a lot of struggle with it. And what he tried to do was he tried to challenge them on the court, and yeah, he could beat them one-on-one, but what did he not demonstrate? To those players for them to buy into him anybody got a guess take a wild guess it's something we've already talked about leadership. well he didn't earn leadership humility. yeah well humility is one but he didn't execute yet he hadn't even played a game you know but you're right all of those things are true Now, to his credit, he took a step back and and, and approached it differently. But it doesn't matter who you are. That's the moral of the story. It doesn't mean how great you are. It doesn't mean what you did yesterday. It matters what you do today and moving forward. And listen. Okay, I'm going to go more on that in just a moment. Most of the time, there are opportunities in the room, wherever that room is, where somebody is asking for your input ahead of time, or there is an opportunity where you can provide the kind of insight, expertise, identify the problem that you've been hungering to provide, but you're so eager, I was so eager to get that across that I missed my opportunities. So it's preparation before you walk into the room And you got to sit quiet and wait. And sometimes you have to wait for that opportunity for weeks or even months. But I, I, I can't tell you how many times, and I know I keep saying that, but it's true, people have come to me and said, you know, I have so much to offer, and they don't seem to want to hear it. Okay? Well, part of the reason why people don't want to hear it is that they feel it's not broke, so why change it? And I'm going to share. Uh, a a framework to understand people's readiness to change but I tell people it may be roughly six to nine months on the outside and sooner if you pay attention and listen but something will happen there'll be a crisis there'll be a lull in the conversation people are going to be at loss for words and that's the time you step in and how you step in makes or breaks you know, and sometimes it's not by offering a solution, but by asking people to take a step back to the up to the balcony and the, let's. What if? So I'll give you an example. I had a, an assignment with Leo Burnett, the ad agency. Just prior to that, I had left my role. I was I was the head of of that multi-hospital organization, and I had taken a multidisciplinary practice, and merged it with part of the Catholic hospital system. And we were anticipating what the Affordable Care Act called um, an accountable care organization. And, we, you know, our funding source was the archdiocese. So, okay, we did this. So now I'm at Leo Burnett. Leo Burnett is the world's richest mom-and-pop advertising organization. They stayed private. At that point in time, and all of their competitors were rising through the um, organization. They were they were rising. They were folding into publicly hold, publicly traded holding companies. And Leo Burnett was faced with its client Procter and Gamble, which was expecting them to do the same thing. And they were. So my job was to help them find a new CEO. The new CEO got involved, and then over the next 18 months, they were going to go and acquire and build a lot of businesses and go public. Sounds like a great idea. But one day we're sitting there, and the uh, news came in that uh, their biggest rival was about to be bought by one of the holding companies. What are we going to do? So I'm sitting there. At that point, they just wanted me to be an executive coach, and, and consultant, and we're just sitting in the room, and they were at a loss. how are we going to manage this if we if this company gets bought by the holding company, we're dead. We're going to lose three quarters of a billion dollars in revenue. I said, well, you know what? I'm not an expert in this, but I did something which in healthcare with the archdiocese. And you know what? I just happened to be there, and they happened to take my idea, and instead of using the archdiocese, we went to Densu, which is the Japanese version of Fox. And they got half a billion dollars. And we flew to New York and bought Darcy and MediaVest and merged them into what was called BCom3. And they held court and eventually became part of a holding company. Now, some people would say becoming part of the big business watered down Leo Burnett's reputation and capability. That may or may not be true. But that was an example of a guy who didn't know advertising at all, who just happened to have an experience that they happened to use because I happened to hang around and be there. Okay? That's how you do it. <clears throat> okay, Benjamin Disraeli, a great, great statesman. <clears throat> this is how you know. How do you interpret that? What's the difference between Benjamin Disraeli and Mr. Gladstone? A conversation versus a monologue. That's right. Yep. It's all about elevating the other person. That's right. It's how you win friends and influence people, too. But if you really want to be included in a group, build on their ideas. Ask them, find, find ways to build on their narrative. So those are the five principles. If you want to become Obi-Wan Kenobi and have influence, there are some tools. Did I rush over those five principles or do they make sense? Okay. First of all, the importance of accurate empathy. Moving beyond binary thinking. How do you become an agent for change? I just want to share a template that I think you can use for the rest of your lives, quite honestly, and understand how we influence. Okay? So, empathy. It's the cornerstone of social-emotional intelligence. You've all heard of emotional intelligence, right? Well, you know what? Somebody's taking a picture. I'll wait. I was about to slip. Did you get it? OK. There we go. Empathy is the single most important part of this. Okay. It's the ability to understand the point of view of others. Okay. It's not sympathy. I'm speaking to the choir here. But so often, we tend to take our worldview and apply it to others. If you really want a seat at the table, if you really want to influence on the front end on big strategic decisions all right, or design initiatives, you need to be able to understand your audience so that you can get your ideas sold by selling the benefits that they identify as legitimate. Even if you think there's more, you've got to be able to do it in digestible chunks. Okay. Anybody recognize that? person on the far right? Margaret Mead. The reason why I talk about Margaret Mead is that she was, you know, a female in a male-dominated um, industry or or, or, or or group, cultural anthropology. Up until Margaret Mead and her mentor, who happened to be a man, the... The approach to anthropology was to go in five minutes. Thank you. So I'll talk fast. Five minutes. Here here you go. Margaret Mead, instead of sitting back and taking notes and watching the tribes in the South Pacific and comparing their behavior to Western civilization and Judeo-Christian criteria, she lived with them, and she understood the tribe. All right, And she was able to understand that not only did they have the same kind of rules for behavior and conduct and the social structure and culture, but they had lessons for us to learn. If you're joining an organization or you want to be an advisor in a group, you need to spend time with them. Whether it's going out to happy hour, whether it's asking to sit in on meetings just so you can learn what's important to them, you'd be pleasantly surprised by the knowledge that provides you so that you're ready for that moment over the next course of several weeks to jump in and to help, OK? And the idea of a positive no, um, you know, basically it means learning how to tell people, no, we can't do this, but I have an idea that might be able to get you the benefit that you're looking for, OK? Stages of change. Um, frankly, I'm not glossing over this because I only have four minutes now to talk, but I'm telling you, I just wanted to refer you. Google James Protasca, and the, the stages of change, people's readiness to change. So often we forget that people are pre-contemplators. They don't even know that the sky is falling like Chicken Little's trying to tell them. So, you know, and you're ready to get people to take action. If you understand that someone's a pre contemplator or only at a stage where they're thinking about doing something but haven't made up their mind, you can adjust. There are simple techniques to communicate your message so that you can move people along the cycle. I'm telling you, whether it's dealing with your children, dealing with your colleagues, dealing with in laws, this is a useful tool. So, check it out. All right. Finally, in terms of influence, the fact of the matter is, like me, all of you don't necessarily have authority that uh, is just given to you. Okay, Um, and it may seem like if you don't have line authority over people, they they won't listen. How many of you are bosses? How many of you have? And how many of you had the experience where no matter what you say or no matter how you direct people, they don't follow your direction? About the same number, right? So even when you're a boss, you need to learn how to influence. And, you know, first and foremost is you gotta, you got to take a moment, just like understanding what is the problem, you got to think about, okay, what do I want to accomplish in this meeting? Okay? What do I want to accomplish with this group? Is my job to come in and just be a supplier today? Am I aware that I can be a supplier, but I have to warn them that if we don't do X, Y, and Z, they're not going to necessarily get the kind of result that they want? Or is this where I begin to help people understand, I can give you what you want, but if you give me $10,000 and an extra two weeks, this is what I can produce for you. And these will be the benefits versus taking this approach. It, it's important to take time before you walk into a room to decide what that is. Oops, sorry. Back. Okay. How does my narrative, how can I tell a story in a way that gets that point across? Sometimes direct telling doesn't make sense. If you pay attention to that Readiness to Change, Continuum from James Protasca. That literally is all you need to know to position your message. Okay, And, you know, basically, how do people put my idea into practice? Sometimes you've got to give people a taste, and they need to get comfortable with it. Okay? And does my idea connect with the greater thinking journey, and do I have meaningful supporting material? All that means is that you do your homework before you walk into the room. And especially if you're on the outside trying to become part of the inside team, you need to be able to figure out, like in jump rope, when you can jump in and how. And the most important way to be a change agent, as I told you or hinted at earlier, is to be a mosquito. How can I influence? How can I get in the door? How can I be a presence, just like those two Women in the White House. Sometimes you just walk in. As my grandmother told me, surprisingly, you can't get any action unless you're where the action is. But once you're where the action is, you've got to speak the language of your audience, you've got to demonstrate that you feel their pain, and you've got to spend sufficient time becoming a regular presence before you're normalized. So I close with Leonardo da Vinci. It's tough in the beginning, but if you hang in there, it does pay off. Last story. When I first was with the Chicago Bulls, I was asked to work with two of the young players, Scotty Pippen and Horace Grant. Well, they didn't know me from, from Adam, and as you can tell, I'm not a tall guy, and you know I don't look like a basketball player even though this was 30-some-odd years ago. But what I did was I spent time. I spent time hanging out. I spent time shagging basketballs while they were shooting. My job was to help them become better free throw shooters, but they weren't ready to hear it from me. So then I started to get into games of horse. And I practiced shooting my free throws. And so then I began to challenge them to a game of 21. It didn't matter if I was as good as them. They just needed to know that I was willing to be one of them. Okay? We had a shared love of the game, the narrative. And then, without even having to impose myself, Scotty Pippen said, you know, Doc, do you ever work with guys who get nervous when they're shooting free throws? Okay? Seemed outrageous. I said, well, Scotty, as a matter of fact, I do. Okay? And we were able to work on it. So those sound like big time stories and name dropping but you know for a little guy who was 20 years older than any of these kids to be able to get there that's what it took and you got to be willing to feel uncomfortable you got to be willing to be embarrassed you got to be willing to fail okay but you got to be willing also to be a part of the tribe you got to be willing to be Margaret Mead you follow these Practices in a year or two or three years from now, if we were to come back and to convene, I guarantee you, you will be much more influential. So, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Chicago Camp's 2017 Prototypes, Process, and Play Design Leadership Conference podcast, sponsored by Balsamic. With Balsamic mock ups, anyone can design great interfaces. And in partnership with Simplecast, publish your podcasts the easy way at simplecast.fm. Learn more about Chicago
1: Camps events on our website at chicagocamps.org.